0: Hi Smarties, today we welcome neuropsychologist and our friend, Dr. Karen Wilson, who has a private practice in Los Angeles. Today she is going to share a little bit about her history and she'll also share what the differences are between a neuropsychological assessment versus a psychoeducational assessment, what testing actually is, and what the process looks like. Karen also shares two of her other passions with us, which is a website called Child Nexus, which we linked in the show notes and we've written articles for, and her thoughts on the transition from high school to college. Testing is a fundamental first step in understanding what is going on with your learner, and it can often provide a guiding light for us as educational therapists as it tells us exactly what is going on with the learner. As always, don't forget to listen to the end of this episode for our thoughts and key takeaways. Get ready for Dr. Wilson Smarties. Let's dig in.
1: You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast.
2: Hi, Smarties, welcome to episode 61 of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts and I'm Rachel Cap. And today we're welcoming Dr. Karen Wilson to the podcast. Hi Karen.
1: Hi ladies.
0: We're excited to have you here.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. And congratulations on your 1-year anniversary. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank
0: you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. I remember the first time I met you, Karen. Mhm. I think Steph and I were in the planning stages of this podcast. I think we talked about it the first time we ever met. And you were working on a big project too, I which did. we'll talk about for sure. But it's crazy to think like this podcast has been going on for – we've known each other a long time now, you and I.
2: When was that? It's
1: been over a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Yes
2: that's crazy. I remember when I met you too, Karen, at the Starbucks. Yes. I do
1: remember that. (laughs) Near Redondo Beach, if I remember.
2: Yeah, down there. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really excited to have you on because I would love for you to explain what it is that you do. (laughs) And I think that this is really exciting, honestly, because a lot of people don't understand it. And just coming from you, I think it'll help break it down. But would love to know sort of your background and how you got to where you
1: are. Okay. So let me start with my background. Um, And I'm not going to start when I was like two, but (laughs) so how I got into this field, I actually, as a high school student was really interested in sciences. I've always been interested in sciences and actually thought I was going to go to medical school. Hmm. And as an undergrad, took all the classes I took calculus, physics, chemistry, biology, and I took psychology as an elective. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it. I thought this is something that I want to do, but I really still love kind of the neuroanatomy and the aspects of the brain. And then I discovered this field of neuropsychology where it just was a perfect mesh between those two areas that I really loved. And I could study the brain without having to touch blood. (laughs) And so it made sense for me. To kind of study the brain, understand it, but then also really explore my love for psychology in a deeper way. So, I, I was a psychology major as an undergrad, and I had a minor in biology. And then I realized fairly early on that neuropsychology was the path that I wanted to go down, and enrolled in a graduate program in neuropsychology. And the rest is almost history. And what's interesting about neuropsychology is, you know, it's a study of the relationship between brain and behavior. And so a lot of my early work was actually in dementia research and dementia evaluation. So I was you know, doing a, a clerkship at Johns Hopkins and I was evaluating older individuals who are struggling with memory problems and figuring out whether this is normal memory decline, age associated, or whether it was a dementia like Alzheimer's disease. And I did that for quite a long time. And it wasn't until I was doing my internship that I realized that there was this whole other area of neurodevelopmental issues in kids. And I started doing those evaluations. And then after I finished my internship, I moved to California where I did postdoctoral training and did some more pediatric work. And I realized that this is really what I wanted to do to really impact and have an impact on individuals early on and make a difference in, in the trajectories of their lives. And so that's how I ended up coming here.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about if someone was going to come and work with you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what would be the initial reason and what would they get as a result of working with you? Because we know because we read it <laughs> and it gives us a guiding a guiding light right. with our students. But for our audience who maybe has no familiarity with this whole kind of process that we go through in LA.
1: Yeah, I would say that most of the people the families that come to me, they come to me because their child is struggling and they don't know why. So most of the kids I see for the first time are somewhere between kindergarten age and third grade. Mm. Although I test all the way up to age 18, but most of them come in within that window. And it's because the kids are struggling in school. They're struggling on the playground. They're struggling in soccer or basketball and the parents don't know why and they want to have a better understanding of why their child is struggling that's the main reason and they will either come in self-referred a friend told them that you know you should maybe look into this a little deeper the school is recommending the pediatrician might be recommending but they're coming in because again their child is struggling they're struggling because they can't read as well as other kids or they can't read at all they can't focus long enough to learn or they're struggling with writing or getting their thoughts out organizing their language. And the parents just want to know why. That's really why they're coming to me. They want to understand why is my child struggling? And then more importantly, what can I do Mm -hmm. to help them? right? And that's my job is to figure this out and then develop a plan to what you do to support your child moving forward with their struggles.
2: It encompasses so many different things Right. That's the beauty of it, too. It's that, you know, you're not just taking the kids that are just not reading. There's all these other things that parents don't really realize. A lot of them just think, oh, I have a reader or I don't. Mm -hmm. And don't really look into there might be other things that are causing other things to show up. Right. And, you know, they're not used to seeing. How would they know? How would you know, right? Unless you do what you do or we do what we do, right? But if you're a parent that has no prior knowledge or experience with this, mm-hmm. or this is the third kid and this is the first time this has happened. Right. How often do we hear that? Right. So I think just the breadth of all the different things that you cover and find out about is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing for parents to be able to find out and figure out so that they can take action and make a plan.
1: Right. And I think one of the things that's important is that when kids are struggling, for I'll use reading as an example since you mentioned it, is that oftentimes you don't know why they're having trouble with reading. And kids can struggle with reading for so many different reasons. And so for some kids, it's that they can't decode those words. You know, they're looking at the squiggly lines on the page and they don't know that those are letters and those letters are connected to sounds. Their brain is not processing that information in the same way. For other kids, they can do that beautifully but they can't understand what they read after they've read this passage fluently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for others, they have a hard time tracking the letters on the page. They can sound them out if they can visually track them, or they're just so inattentive. They're adding words that aren't on the page, skipping words that are on the page, because they can't focus long enough to get through what is on the page. And if you don't know why they're struggling with that one task of reading, you don't know where to intervene. Right? Yes. And then you get a tutor and you're saying, I'm going to get a tutor to help with reading. But if you don't know if it's attention, language, phonological processing, comprehension, then what are you working on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: I think that just
0: says it all right there. Yeah. (laughs) Preach, Karen. (laughs) One of the points of this podcast is we hope that. When parents are listening or educators are listening, they are able to connect with whatever narrative we're sharing. This conversation that we're having, it's a pretty typical case for Steph and I and maybe for you to see as well. I would love for you to talk a little bit about the energy with which parents come to you Mm -hmm. because we spend a lot of time trying to normalize you know, there are themes and trends that we hear every day from every call that we get. And I'm sure it's similar to you. So I'd love for you to be able to share with us, if you can, a little bit about how you make parents feel understood and validated and supported, because this is really scary for a lot of them.
1: It's really important that you said that because I think it is frightening. And I think that the anxiety about what this could mean and what this could be actually keeps parents from doing the assessment. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot where there's been a delay in actually doing the evaluation and had they intervened earlier, they probably would have had better results and better outcomes. But I think that parents come in either because they have a sense that something's going on my child is taking two hours to do homework that's supposed to take 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the school will refer them, but they think everything is fine. And so there's such a broad range of the mindset of parents when they come in. And part of my job is to not only describe the process, but to let them know I'm not just looking for something that's wrong. I'm not just looking to say, is this dyslexia? Is this ADHD? Is this autism? what I want at the end of this process is a profile of your child's strengths and weaknesses. You may get a diagnosis out of that and we can talk about what that might look like. But ultimately, if there are areas of weakness that are causing the child's struggles, we have to know what the strengths are because that is what we use to develop a plan that allows that child to compensate for those areas of weakness. And so it's not only about you know, identifying, you know, a learning disability. It's about really capturing the strengths of this child. And so many kids that I see are working so incredibly hard to kind of get the work done. And they've got a great deal of motivation and fortitude, but it's a struggle for them. And what I tell parents is that if we can understand why they're struggling, we can help them. Mm -hmm. And when they get help, there's such a relief Because now I don't have to work as hard, or now I have a better understanding of why this is hard for me. And that is so important for so many kids and so many families because a lot of time there's blame and there's shame and there's misunderstanding. It looks like laziness or a lack of motivation or a lack of interest. And once you have a better understanding, you can better empathize with the child's struggles and then set them up for success.
2: I want to add that Rach and I always get a parent that comes in and says, you're everything I never knew I needed. And where were you when I was a kid? Mm -hmm. So I was just going to ask how often through this process do parents start to realize or understand their own journey as learners and that they had similar issues when they were growing up?
1: I would say that most families have that experience. Where the parents will say, I struggle. One parent will say, I struggled in school and didn't know why. And I didn't get it together until I was in college. Mm -hmm. And so that actually helps a little bit because a lot of those parents come in because they don't want their child to experience the same struggles that they did. So that can be helpful. Or some parents didn't realize that that's why they were struggling. And it's an aha moment for them. And then they end up wanting an evaluation for themselves just to understand or validate what it is that they're experiencing and why they're experiencing the difficulties that they've had. And maybe some of them continue to have as adults.
0: We have the parallel experience. Mm -hmm. The client becomes, so to speak, we try very hard not to kind of have this framework, but in some families, the client becomes, the learner becomes the identified patient in the family structure. Mm -hmm. But when that one person the kid, let's say, in the family structure starts to make shifts and changes. Everybody else in the family has to shift and change around them. And so that's why I think, Steph, you had this week a meeting with a parent and you did a session with a parent. It happens to us where the parents are like, can we come in and just kind of get, as you said, our act together? Because they see their kid getting their act together, and the kid becomes the one who kind of is the leader of the pack, so to speak. It's really interesting to watch.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
2: So, Karen, this is a question I think that most people don't understand. There are two types of testing. There's neuropsychology testing, and then there's psychology testing, psychoeducational testing, so to speak. Yes. Can you explain to us what the difference
1: is? I can, and I will. Um, so, So psychoeducational testing is a limited battery of tests, and that can vary depending on who's administering it, but typically it's used to identify a learning difficulty in a child. And so you're going to get a lot of the academic testing, so reading, writing, and math, and maybe some general cognitive testing, But what a neuropsychological assessment is, it's a broader scope. So it includes what would be assessed in the psychoeducational assessment, but it goes further in terms of areas of assessment. So where a psychoeducation may include some cognitive testing and some academics, reading, writing, and math, what the neuropsychologist will do is do that kind of testing, but then also measure executive functioning, measure attention measure memory, working memory, social perception. We're looking at depression, anxiety, self-concept. And so it broadens the scope of what you're looking at. And so you're not missing any because often this is the first kind of baseline assessment of functioning. And if you just look at, let's just look for a learning disability. So let's just look at reading, writing, and math, and maybe some cognitive testing. What if it's not that? and you've tested it and everything looks fine, but you haven't looked at language, you haven't looked at executive functioning, you haven't looked at attention, you haven't looked at memory, then you might be missing something that's really important that could be contributing to the difficulty. So it's really about a broader scope in terms of what's being assessed, but then also the neuropsychologist is looking at the test results through the lens of the relationship between the brain and behavior And what that looks like in a developing child and so the perspective is a little bit different as well if that makes sense
0: it does (laughs) karen can you talk a little bit about what the actual testing looks like so that if this is something parents are considering they can kind of envision what either they or their child are going to go
1: through yes the process kind of begins with a conversation And once someone is actually scheduled in the office, sometimes I'll talk to them before just to determine whether or not this is the appropriate type of evaluation that's needed or necessary. But once it is determined that this is the route to go, then my process is to sit down with parents and kind of get an idea of why the child is struggling and what the concerns are and get a full history. I want to know everything from pregnancy, birth and delivery, to you know what things are happening at school, what things are happening at home, and what is happening during extracurricular activities, because that tells me if there is an issue, how pervasive is it? You know, I'm not only seeing inattention at school and at home, but it's also happening at soccer um, or in Girl Scouts and things like that. So I want to get all the history, and I want to also know what the risk factors are because. That's when you get the family history to know, oh, well, you know, we've got 10 people in the family who have ADHD. Well, that's a red flag, right? Mm -hmm. And then the birth and delivery and pregnancy is important because there are certain things that put kids at greater risk for having learning disorders. So a low birth weight, you know, significant, you know, stress during development, the process of birth itself in terms of lack of oxygen or things like that that can happen. And so I want to know what those, risk factors are. And then also developmental milestones. So I'm asking things like, when did the child start talking and walking and putting sentences together? Um, when did did they nurse? And did they have problems with latching? All of those things together give me a picture of what kids are at risk for, given their early experience. And then I'm talking to the parents about their experiences. and. We're sitting for about 90 minutes gathering all this information. And what that does is it helps me to determine which tests I'm going to give to answer the questions that they have. And even though there's a standard battery, parents come in with different reasons for the testing. So if there's really some early indications of language delays, then I'm going to give a full language battery as part of my assessment. For some kids, that's not as important. So I may do like a language screen, but maybe attention is a huge issue. So I'll do a lot of attention testing, and give a lot of questionnaires to parents and teachers. And so it really depends, allows me to kind of individualize the assessment battery for the family to make sure that I'm going to be answering the questions they have by the end of the process. And then I see the child for testing and for their own little interview, which is not formal, but it happens over the course of a few days. And we go through the testing where I'm looking at kind of their intellectual functioning, the way they process information, how quickly they process information. We're looking at reading, writing, and math. And again, I'm looking at different aspects of that because I'm looking at how quickly they can read, how accurately they can read. What is their reading comprehension like? Is the reading comprehension different if you leave the passage in front of them or if they have to rely on their working memory to remember it? I'm looking at reading comprehension versus listening comprehension. Those are two different processes in the brain. And so, is there a difference? Because what that tells me, it tells me how kids can compensate. So, if a kid is really struggling with reading comprehension, but their listening comprehension is spectacular, then I know the audiobooks are probably going to be really helpful for that kid, right? Mm-hmm. But if I didn't test for listening comprehension, I may not know that. And then I'm looking at the kid's ability to pay attention to things they hear versus things they see, their memory. Those two things are different processes. And I want to be able to distinguish between the two because so many parents come in and say, oh, my kid has a great memory, but they're having trouble you know, paying attention. Or sometimes they say, my kid's really forgetful. And I think there's a memory problem. And then when I look, I see that it's not a memory problem because I've done a full memory battery. It's an attention problem. And what I tell parents is that kids can't remember something they didn't pay attention to in the first place. Yes. (laughs) You won't know unless you assess for both of those things where the breakdown is, which is the beauty of this type of assessment because you really can pinpoint where the struggle is and then intervene appropriately. And so I'm testing for all of those things I'm giving questionnaires also to teachers and I'm speaking with teachers because I want to know what is that child's experience like in the classroom? What are the teachers seeing? Because that's a completely different context than at home and then in my office. In my office, we're one-on-one, there are no distractions. It's the optimal environment for testing and for getting things done. And sometimes kids can work really well in here one-on-one with me, but in the classroom with all of those distractions, if they have difficulty with filtering or managing a lot of different things, things really break down. And so that teacher perspective is also important for me to know, you know, what's happening at school. And so I have parents complete questionnaires, teachers complete questionnaires. I speak with parents, speak with teachers, assess the child, and get the child's perspective. What is school like for you? What is hard? What do you like? What is difficult? What do you think would make things easier for you? And I put all those things together, analyze all the information, and then I meet with the parents again to go over the results and to make recommendations moving forward. And then I also meet with the child, because oftentimes the kid has spent two, four days with me and they want to know. They're the ones experiencing these struggles, and they need to know in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. You know, why they're struggling? Why we're making the recommendations? Why am I now going to see an educational therapist? And how will this help me? And understanding, you know, how their brain is wired differently. And I think that's just very empowering and very enlightening for kids to realize, oh. I am smart because a lot of times even with kids are really bright, but they're struggling with reading or math or paying attention, they don't feel smart. And so for them, it's important for them to know that, look at these things that you did really great at, but this is harder for you and we're going to do something about it. And so it actually gives them some hope.
2: Yeah. I love the way you just normalize that too, because... So often the kids feel like they are not as good as their peers or they're not smart or... Not as good as their siblings.
1: Oh, yes. I see that a lot too.
2: Yeah. And really, it's just when you break it down it has nothing to do with intellectual ability or anything like that at all. So I love the way you're looking at all the different things, all the things. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just going to ask quickly, when should you have your child get tested? And when should you not have your child get tested? Is there even a situation like that?
1: It differs from child to child. So there's not like one benchmark, but I would say if a child has been struggling and parents have tried different things, the school has tried different things, and it has not worked, or it's worked a little, but the child is still struggling, then that's the time to dig a little deeper and probably do an evaluation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to understand. Again, if you've tried something and it's not working, then you want to dig a little deeper to find out why. And I often think about it as you want to observe what are you observing? And then you want to validate your observation. So if your child is spending, like I said, two hours doing homework, that should take 30 minutes. Then you check in with the teachers and let them know, this is what my experience is like at homework. What are you seeing at school? And is this something that I should expect? Should I be concerned? And you have that dialogue and then you discuss with them, do you think it would be helpful to have my child evaluated? And you're just getting information. You're not saying, well, whatever the teacher says, that's what I'm going to do. But it allows you to kind of validate what it is that you're seeing to determine what the next step should be. But the other thing is if a child is telling you, then the way that they're behaving, that they are struggling, then that may also be a time to get assessed, is when the child doesn't want to go to school because it's hard, or they're having tantrums before homework because it's terribly difficult for them to get through the work and it's just revealing to them their struggles every day mm-hmm. after school or you see a change in behavior where you know a kid who had you know this great gregarious personality is now a little more subdued a little more withdrawn and you also know that they've been struggling in some way and so those are kind of red flags that suggest that you want to figure out where the difficulties lie so that you can kind of move forward and providing help and support.
2: And I think that's great. And I think one of the things that Rachel and I always talk about, and I know I say this all the time to parents when they felt in their gut, their mom gut, that something was wrong and everyone kept saying, oh, they'll grow out of it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to make sure that those parents know that if you're feeling it in your gut, Then it's definitely worth checking out.
1: That's such an important point because I can't tell you how many excuses and rationalizations I've heard from educators and parents over the years. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, he's a boy. That's why he's talking a little bit later. Or she's just a girl. Or she's just really social. Or, you know, that's just Jenny being Jenny. That's just how she is. Or, you know, they went to a play based preschool. That's why they can't read at the end of kindergarten. And so, We kind of have a tendency to rationalize because a lot of parents don't want a label.
0: Right. They're trying to create their own story about what happened.
1: Absolutely. And I think when we delay evaluation, we do the kids a disservice because the research is clear that the earlier you intervene, the better the outcome. And I agree with you on the mommy intuition because, you know, I've worked with parents who've said, oh, you know, the school thinks he's fine, but there's something inside me that says that my child is working way too hard to just pass or just-
2: Just fill in the blank. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah, whatever, whatever it whatever is.
1: is. And, you know, I had a case I can think about last year where the mom said, you know, I just have a sense that my kid is struggling. The school says that he's fine, but I want you to take a look and see- And when I handed those teachers the rating forms, Mm -hmm. that kid who was fine, according to the teachers, once they were forced to indicate, oh, I see this behavior sometimes, often, or always, it was off the chart in terms of attention issues Hmm. and in terms of learning. Wow. But this child also had a tutor since kindergarten and was now in the fourth grade. And so they would probably had masked a lot of the difficulties that that child had and In fourth grade, now I'm diagnosing dyslexia and ADHD for the first time in a fourth grader. Mm -hmm. You know, if that happens, a lot of times when you delay, you also increase the chances that that child is going to experience anxiety, concept, and maybe even be at greater risk for depression.
0: It's something I think I see very frequently in my practice. I've seen teenagers, I've seen 14, 15, 16-year-olds get diagnoses for the first time, and we always say after puberty, the emotional untangling of all the, it's not necessarily trauma, that's not the, necessarily the right word, but all the emotions wrapped up in the fact that school was difficult, they were trying, the message they were receiving was either you're not doing good enough, you're not trying hard enough, or you're lazy, and mm-hmm. And then you get these middle school and high school students who I don't blame their attitude about school at all. Why? Try. Mm -hmm. And then you finally get some understanding. And I will say this, no matter the age that parents do the testing, there's always parent guilt for not Mm -hmm. knowing sooner. Absolutely. No matter what. You do it with a second grade family, it's going to feel guilty that they didn't do it earlier. I saw it when I was teaching preschool and these kids were very little. But the emotional disentanglement becomes almost the first step of educational therapy when they're working with us, because this is what will happen. Parents will get the diagnosis. The kids will get the diagnosis. Well, now we understand, so we're going to go fix it. Well, hold up. This is who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. They're perfect. I don't need to fix anything. We need to figure out compensatory strategies. But before I can even offer up something that could be a game changer, we have to deal with the emotions because mm-hmm. when kids are operating in the emotional state and, you know, that includes kids who are presenting entirely apathetic and like they're coming to us because, you know, they have to, their parents are telling them to, but that's where we have to start. So then we have to manage parent expectations of, you know, that first win can take a very long time. mm mm-hmm. But then we get that first win. It's going to be a shorter time to the second. And then we'll have this like little mini snowball happening. Mm -hmm. That's what we see. right? That's why when we can get a kid in third, fourth, second in elementary school, our jobs are so much easier to be completely frank about it.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree with you, because once you get those adolescents, again, like you're saying, you've got that emotional component, and you've got years of either academic failure or academic difficulty, and then even in bright kids, yes, a lot of the bright kids are also identified later because they can compensate for longer. So true. you know they've got that problem-solving ability, that intellectual ability, that significantly high memory capacity. But then once those academic demands increase, they can no longer rely on those strategies to help them and things fall apart. And they have no idea why. Yeah. And then you're hit with that, again, that emotional difficulty.
2: And that's their identity, right? Their identity has always been, this was easy. They didn't need to study. Why change? All of those things. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I've got the student that comes in and has already identified themselves as dumb or lazy or whatever it is for instance I have a kid that I saw last night I've only seen her a couple times and a few times I've asked her if she can do something and she'll say not really and then when I probe a little further and she can actually do it we actually go back and I say let's try that again can you do this yeah and I want her to confidently say yeah I can do this right right when we both have those aha moments with the kids and they just light up with being proud of themselves and having a little bit of, you know, a little bravado that they've lost.
0: It's so game changing for some of them. Absolutely. I say all the time, you know, you said that kind of weakly. Can you say that with strength now? (laughs) And they'll say it. And I go, go ahead and shout it. No one's here. Go ahead and shout it. And, you know, they get all shy and nervous about it. Right. And they're like, are you sure your team member isn't right next door? I'm like, I don't care if she is. You shout it. Because it's emotional when we had those kind of breakthrough moments. Because, you know, one of the ways we sell at therapy is that our job is to make things easier. Absolutely. So when we do, and it happens for them, it doesn't happen overnight But there is this slow shift that occurs, which is awesome. It is. I just had this conversation with a parent who called last week about her fifth grader. She's a mom of three, and he was the oldest. I've known the family for quite a long time. She was kind of describing this exact child. Mm -hmm. I remembered him from back in the day and her other kids. And I said, he's really bright. He's probably been compensating. He's in fifth grade. Yeah. It's leveled up. He has a teacher that definitely did not understand him uh-huh. who pulls him into a meeting to tell him he's going to struggle in middle school. Uh huh. Mm. And I said, Well, that's just ridiculous because he's going to start coming and we're going to coach him up so that he, it's not going to be a perfect transition because it never is from elementary to middle but he's going to have the support that he needs and it is has no bearing on intelligence. She was so quiet on the phone. She goes, "You know, he was kind of my easy one because he's been good. And it's only this year that we've noticed and the guilt that was associated. I said, "Well, you can't know what you can't know." Right?
1: Right. And there's so much to unpack because you know, you talk about guilt, but there's also even after they get the diagnosis there, for some reason, there's a shame involved. Uh-huh. Like it's something that they've done and it's not, which is why that feedback is so important. And, you know, if your child had a medical condition, there isn't the same level of shame. But for some reason, when it's a learning issue or a processing issue, then there's a shame component to it. And I think that's something that we need to work on um, as a society to just increase understanding of what this is and what it's not and to normalize it. I mean, Six to 10% of the population has a learning issue, and they say an additional 15% have undiagnosed learning and processing issues. That's a significant number of kids, millions of kids across the country impacted. Yeah. Wow.
0: We often tell our parents, Your kid is going to be an unbelievable adult. Right. They are going to look at the world with their unique lens, and they're going to offer solutions to problems. That show the diversity of their thinking. Right. We're dealing with parents who have been highly Mm -hmm. successful often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is the perfect example to point to because very often the parent can relate to the struggles of their kids. So all this fear about like what's going to happen to them which I think is like kind of a normal parenting fear anyway. Parents worry about their kids becoming independent and autonomous adults. And like, that's the goal of parenting, right? Launch your kids into life. But then you can point to the parent who experienced the same thing as a student. and am like, look, you're killing it. Yeah. yeah. Right now. Like everything
2: turned out okay. Yeah. So, And for those parents that are just, you know, knee deep in it right now, I just wanted to mention that in episode one, we talk about you're not alone because like Karen said, there's so many kids and adults who struggled as Mm -hmm. kids that are dealing with the same thing. And I agree with you. Let's take the shame part out of it and let's work to make it easier. We don't talk about it enough.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why people are embracing this whole idea of neurodiversity for the reasons that you're talking about that a lot of these kids, if they have areas of weakness, they also have areas of tremendous strength that is beneficial in the academic environment to businesses. And I think we're, we're figuring that out more and more. Mm-hmm. And that's an important message to tell people. But we also be, again, it ties back to identifying those strengths and weaknesses and helping the child further develop those strengths that they can later use um, to be successful.
0: This is almost the exact right moment of history for your kid to get identified with a learning disability, right? Yeah. Because we know what to do. Yeah. Teachers are understanding the language of this. Schools are understanding the language of this. Society is starting to understand it more.
1: Right. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: And we know what to do now about it.
1: What's interesting about that and the irony of that is that we have access to more information than we've ever had. But still, there's so much misinformation and well-educated parents who come into my office and still don't know what dyslexia is and don't know what ADHD is. And there's still so much work that needs to be done in terms of educating parents, informing teachers, and really helping society understand these profiles and these kids and what they look like as they get older. Because then we can help more people, which is why, you know, what you've done with your podcast is so important. Is because you both and like myself, we want to do more than just affect the small number of kids that we can see in our offices yep. on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you want to have a greater impact. And for me, you know, because I do so many different things, there's only so many kids I can see in my office. You know, the neuropsych assessment takes over twenty hours of my time for one kid. Mm. And there are so many kids and so many parents who could benefit from the information that we have Yes, that it's important for us to share it to as many people as possible. And I mean, I did a talk in March in front of school principals for an organization, American Christian Schools International. And so many of them completed these feedback forms and said, thank you for explaining executive functioning to me, I didn't know what it was. Or thank you for explaining dyslexia, that's not what I thought it was. And these are principals. And so now they've invited me back to talk to their teachers because they want their teachers to have that information. So I'll be speaking in front of 900 teachers, I think in Northern California, 750 in Southern California. But even with all the information that is available, there's not enough sharing of that information with the people who need to hear about it.
2: It's true. Yeah. So just like you were saying, we're trying to get this information out there. You have been working on this project that you told us about a couple of years ago. And We'd love to have you share what it is because we think it's great and so important.
1: Right. So I have been working on this project and we did kind of what we call a soft launch. It's really what it is. It's a web platform that allows parents to access information about what is going on when kids struggle. And so you can go on there, you can search for attention issues, comprehension difficulties, and you can read these articles that have been written by experts in the field, clinicians who are doing the work, educational therapists. You both contributed to a great article on executive functioning.
0: We'll link it in the show notes. And
1: <laughs> because it's important. It's important for people to have access to that information. I also wanted it to be one place where parents can go, whether or not your child has been diagnosed, not diagnosed, whether it's ADHD. Reading problems, anxiety, depression, I wanted them to go to one place where they could get all of that information. But I wanted to go a step further and allow them to connect with professionals who could provide the services. So if you are thinking that your child needs an evaluation, you can connect with someone who can do that assessment. Or if you have an assessment and you're looking for an educational therapist or a speech and language pathologist, you can do a search and find someone. Who can do the work that's needed to kind of move the needle for your child. So really what it is, it's a place where parents can go to access information, educators can go to get information, but then also connect with professionals who can provide the support. And on the professional end, I wanted it to form a community of professionals who see these kids from different perspectives, because I think that's so valuable because oftentimes As neuropsychologists and as educational therapists and as speech and language pathologists, we go to our own conferences and we speak amongst ourselves. Yes. But the cross-sharing of information is so important to have a deeper understanding of these kids. So if I can take the kid that I assessed who's got language issues and attention difficulties, and hear about what that looks like from the educational therapist perspective, from the speech and language therapist perspective, from psychiatrists, then that is really important. To the work that I do. It helps me become a better clinician when we're kind of exchanging ideas and sharing information because I think it makes us better clinicians and we help kids in a better way when we're able to do that.
2: We so agree. We love it. Fantastic. Yeah. We love it. So let's go back, let's transition back for a second to your, your passion sort of, or your niche a little bit, right? Yes. Which is, The transition from high school to college, can you talk a little bit about why it's so hard other than the obvious, your parents aren't right in front of you and they're not living at (laughs) home? I mean, we all know those things, but there's a lot more to it that I think you can provide.
1: I mean, there is. It's such an interesting time for adolescents, regardless of whether you have learning difficulties or not what we know about neurodevelopment is that it doesn't stop at age 18. right? And so we know that there's been more discussion over the last few years about this period of emerging adulthood. And so what we know is that there's this extended period of neurodevelopment that occurs between the ages of 18 and 25, 26. And so we often think about when we think about kids who are finishing up high school, it's like, oh, our work is done. You know, <laughs> we've got them all the support that they needed. They've graduated high school. They got into this college and now they're ready to go. But there's still much, so much brain development that still has to occur. I mean, we know that the front of the brain is the last part of the brain to develop. And that happens to be the part of the brain that's responsible for all the executive functions that you all have talked about in your podcast about time management and planning and organization, but also judgment, decision making, right? And so what's happening is that you're sending these young people off to college with an underdeveloped frontal lobe, and you're putting them in an environment that has very high executive functioning expectations. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that the research shows that those students who have learning disabilities, their brain development can be delayed as much as three years. So think about the 17-year-old that you're sending away to college who has learning struggles, who really has a 14-year-old frontal lobe, right? And being Mm -hmm. able to kind of manage all of the demands. So they're not only kind of figure out how to get their work done, But they're now managing finances, and they're thinking about laundry, and they've got all these social expectations, and they no longer have the support of their ed therapist (laughs) that they've had all the way through high school. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, or parents.
1: Right, or their parents. And so what the research shows is that during that critical period of emerging adulthood, there's still a need for societal and parental support to kind of bridge that gap while those brain areas are still developing. And that's particularly true in kids who've had these learning challenges all along. And not only is it cognitively, kind of this period of development is important, but emotionally, it's also a really vulnerable time. And again, what the research shows is that individuals, adolescents who may have been fine all along and not struggled with a lot of emotional difficulties, that's a period of time where anxiety and depression can really impact them, right? For the first time, they may experience significant anxiety and significant depression. And imagine what that looks like in a kid who's already struggling with learning issues Mm -hmm. and now in a new environment, right? And so you've got this kind of interplay between a weak frontal lobe or weak executive functioning system, a developing frontal lobe, increased demands on that frontal lobe and less support, right?
2: It's a recipe for disaster. It
1: is. It really is, which again suggests that there's a need to continue to provide support and have things in place to support that child when they go to college because kids with learning issues and other kind of mental health issues are at greatest risk for dropout once they go to college. Right. Right now, if you include four year colleges and community colleges, the dropout rate is over fifty percent of kids don't finish college hmm. and that rate is higher in kids who have identified learning issues and so you want to make sure that they're getting the academic support but also the social and emotional support once they make that transition and that preparation should begin before you know it should begin in 10th grade and 11th grade and having these discussions and getting things in place and doing your research on schools that provide that support in a better way so it's really imperative that that gets done.
0: I want to just make one helpful suggestion. It is often easier for a college student to find a net therapist than a middle school, elementary, high school student. And here's why. Their classes are at different times and we usually have morning availability. (laughs) So they have more flexibility in their schedule. So it's easier for us to get them on our caseload. And for us, especially if we've had a relationship with the client prior, we can do those sessions virtually. Yep. They do not have to be local to us. It's not a requirement that we had a relationship with them prior because we definitely both have worked with students who are in college. Oftentimes the college age students who are calling us are the students themselves. Mm -hmm. And they've kind of self-advocated and figured out that this would be something that would be beneficial for them. So it's something to think about is that, it can be difficult to find a net therapist. We only have, let's say, 25 hours a week that we can really meet with students. And that's a lot of hours for us. That's very full time Mm -hmm. for me and staff. But we can add those kids in earlier in the day. It's possible.
2: Yeah, it is possible. And I wanted to add that I know that I think a lot of college kids, there's this misconception that if you hadn't been diagnosed with something before you got to college, that you don't actually have something. Mm -hmm. For instance, ADHD. I'm thinking about one kid in particular that I know that- I have friends. (laughs) Yeah. That um, this person's not a client. It's a kid I know in my life. And this person got diagnosed in college. And this person was maybe even thinking, well, I wish that I had known, of course, first of all. But- It didn't look like it does now that I have to be in the world doing all these things. Right. And so I think there's probably a fear, too, of, well, if I haven't been diagnosed with it already, then I probably don't have it, when, in fact, you could.
1: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, if if it was missed and it wasn't identified or a person was compensating, then it would not be identified until those demands increase. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we have parents in our offices saying, that was me. Mm -hmm. The things that my kid is experiencing and you've just diagnosed him, I experienced the same thing, but they had no idea why. And I didn't know why until this moment. Yeah. Right?
2: And how empowering.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. If we can take out the
2: shame, it can be so empowering to know and understand how your brain works and how you can use compensatory strategies to make your life flow in a way that is easier for you. However that looks.
1: Right. Right. And then once you get the appropriate intervention, then you see the transformation, yeah. right? Yeah. Then you see the transformation and then those individuals who've gone through the interventions can better see their potential, for right? Sure. And the potential becomes realized.
2: Yeah. And what would you want parents and teachers to know? who have students headed to college?
1: I would say that to connect those students if they have learning difficulties with the students with disabilities office on their campuses Mm -hmm. and have them meet with a counselor to design their academic schedule. Because not all students need to have a full-time load Mm -hmm. during that first semester, right? It just makes sense, right? (laughs) To go part-time and see how things go. And once you realize, okay, I can manage these three classes, then you can add another one. And nobody has to graduate in four years. Most students do not graduate in four years. So you spread the courses that you need to take to graduate over summer sessions. Maybe you take one course every summer. Mm -hmm. Maybe you take a lower course load during the academic year. You miss and match the more rigorous courses with the less rigorous courses. Um, You use spring intercession. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do. You extend your graduation. Maybe you graduate in six years instead of four. So there are a lot of things that can be done that can alleviate the stress that's associated with this period of transition.
2: I think that's great. And I think a lot of people don't even realize you don't have to take a full load.
1: Absolutely.
0: Or graduate in this arbitrary number that we've determined. I have cousins who are college age and part of their decision-making factor about which school they were going to go to is which school they thought they could graduate in four years. And I was like, why? Why? And when I said, why do you have to graduate in four years? First of all, it's going to be scary when you graduate. You should be warned that when you finish college and you're from a family where the expectation was that you're going to go to college. I remember being a senior and looking at darkness It was like a blackness that was coming over me very quickly because I was like, what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember saying to my dad, what am I supposed to do with myself now? Right. Right. And he goes, well, that's for you to figure out. I said, well, I'm not equipped to
1: figure that out. (laughs) I need to be told. I'm still trying to figure this all out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so there's no rush to go and pick a school that they have a higher rate of students who graduate in four years. And if you're really motivated to graduate in four years, you can do that too at most schools. You can figure that out. Absolutely.
1: And then also to know where the resources are in terms of emotional support. Because again, it's a very anxiety provoking time during that transition and being able to identify, well, here are the mental health services for this campus. Or if a child is already experiencing anxiety or has a history of anxiety, let's connect with a clinician in the community get them prepped near the college where they can have that emotional support, psychotherapy, a group therapy, whatever that looks like to kind of act as a buffer for the stressors that will come because yeah. there's there will always be stressors associated with making a significant transition in your life. So those are things that parents can be thinking about in order to kind of set their kids up for success. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of parents don't realize that you can get accommodations in college. I think that most people just think it ends in high school. It just drops off. And I've had a number of conversations with people that, you know, and thinking that unless you went to, you know, the program at University of Arizona or a couple of the specialty colleges that, you know, have a lot of accommodations, that they don't exist in other places. And they absolutely do.
1: They do. They do. And I mean, you don't have a 504 plan or an IEP, yeah. Um, but you do have accommodations, but you have to be a self-advocate. They're not going to come looking for you. No Mm-mm. professor is going to say, oh, you seem to be struggling with attention issues. Maybe you should have an evaluation, right? right? You <laughs> really have to be a self-advocate and go and seek out those services and those accommodations. And the earlier you do it, the better, right the other thing is that some students say you know i've got this i'm going to go and i don't need these accommodations anymore i'm just going to give it a try and then not realizing the demands that are on them academically and also the all the environmental demands and so while that may be very optimistic and maybe it can be done you really want to have a plan in place even if you don't use those accommodations get them early because what you don't want to do is go in there and say oh i'm just going to try and then you realize Quickly during that, you know, first couple months of school, that things are falling apart, mm-hmm. and then you have to go and register and get all the paperwork filled out. And why have that added stress at that moment when you are responding to stress, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's important to set those things up early. And then again, if students don't feel like they need it, they don't have to use them.
0: Yeah, um, but at least but at least it.
1: they they've already have been established and you know, registered for the services that they need.
0: It's the difference between being reactive and being proactive about it. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Even with my high school kids, I'm constantly saying you don't have to use it, but let's just get it in place because so often they, well, I don't know anybody else who has that or does that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there going, you know, but you just don't even realize.
1: Right. Right.
0: And I know that I went to a fairly large public university But I had a roommate who had accommodations, and it almost seemed easier emotionally to use the accommodations in college because classes were so big, nobody knew who was doing what, right? Mm -hmm. You're paying attention to yourself. Whereas in high school, it can be seen and it can be known who's stepping out of the class to take a test in private or who's getting extended time. Mm -hmm. Like It's a smaller community, so it's not necessarily a disadvantage to be at a large school, Right. If
1: you know yourself. Right. And a lot of it is how you plan your schedule. You know, a student who knows that their working memory is best in the morning, then you're not taking evening classes, right? (laughs) You can plan your schedule. Or if you're someone who just has a real struggle in the morning, but you do better in the late afternoon, then you can plan your schedule so that your courses at a time when your brain can respond optimally. Right?
0: Absolutely. Yep. I love it. Karen,
2: we can't thank you enough for coming on because I am feeling just so full of information right now and just energized about our audience being able to hear and how you explained everything. And I think it really broke it down in a really great way. So thank you. You
0: lit us up a little bit.
1: Yeah. I am so glad because it really was my pleasure being here and talking with you both and You know, you both are doing really extraordinary work, not only in your private practices, but just with this podcast and getting information out there so that more people can have access to information and benefit from your experience. Thank you. So, thank you for allowing me to be part of that.
0: Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. That was an
2: unbelievable episode. And I would love to hear what your
0: takeaways were. First of all, how clear. And simple does she make all this really complex stuff. Oh, my gosh. It was amazing. I loved hearing her explanations because I was like, oh, (laughs) yes, we can understand it in a much more complex and detailed way. But fundamentally, the way she explained things was like... (laughs) want a transcript. Right? (laughs) You know, kind of highlighting the fact that her main area of focus, which I had just never put together for neuropsych, is really to look at the brain behavior connection. Yes. That was a big takeaway for me. She made it so simple because I know exactly what neuropsychs do. I know exactly what people who do psychoeducational evaluations do. But adding that Really, really simple framework. This is why we like frameworks, guys. This is why we like ways of thinking about things because you make a complex idea simple.
2: Really, honestly, it is. And I think that her explanation, besides being so clear, also showing us that there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. That you might get a diagnosis, you might not, but you don't go in just for a diagnosis. Right. You're finding a lot of other things. And there'll be a lot of things that you'll be able to celebrate about your child, even if you're feeling like they might have dyslexia or they might have something else going on.
0: Yeah. We don't want the neuropsych report to feel like a punishment. Yeah. And oftentimes I wonder if people are going into this as a result of you know, something's gone wrong. So now this feels like the consequence, right? Mm -hmm. But really, it's a blessing because it's going to allow everybody who's working with your child and everyone in the future who will work with your child, there is a documentation of where they were at this particular age and time. And the fundamentals of who they are, it's who they are Yeah, moving forward. And it's just a snapshot, Mm -hmm. right?
2: Mm -hmm. And so... I think that's important to note, and it's not going to decide the future of your child. It's an in-depth snapshot, right? Highly detailed. But yeah, it's not going to determine the future.
0: Oftentimes, these neuropsych reports, if you've never seen one, they can be 20 to 30 pages Mm -hmm. routinely. Yeah. So it's extensive work of your child at this particular moment in life. So Smarties, we hope you enjoyed today. As always, go ahead and join our Facebook group, The Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast. And don't forget to join our email list. That's where you get special insider behind the scenes look of what's going on and what we're thinking about at that particular moment. It's a great way to connect with us. So you can join our email list by going to www.learnsmarterpodcast.com. Really awesome picture of me and stuff on the front of that website. (laughs) It's true. But have a great week, Smarties.
2: Have a great week.